Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm your host, and I'm based in the wonderful, very windy today city of Dublin City, Ireland. And I offer training to organizations internationally in service design, user experience design, and design research. And also work one-on-one with change makers from all over the world with my 12-week coaching program that I offer through this podcast. So if you're listening to this episode and like This Is HCD, then I reckon my program might be something that you're interested in. I've worked with designers from all different levels, from C-level to mid-level, helping them grow both as a practitioner and as a person. So for more information, see the website and schedule a free chemistry call with me. And if anything, it'd be just so cool to connect and get to speak with you. Check the link in the show notes or the description if you're watching this on our YouTube channel. Now, in this episode, I chat with someone who's really, really special. I chat with Suzanne Hanway, an occupational therapist in Dublin, in Hoth in Dublin for anyone who's in Ireland, who works with children who are specifically, who identify as neurodiverse. Now, we met through one of my own children who gets support from her to help my child regulate better. And sitting in on part of these sessions, it always blows my mind. Why exactly? Well, each session is led by the child specifically. It's facilitation mastery. And I really love observing and understanding understanding the science behind the why. So in one of the many, many conversations that I had with Suzanne over the years, I asked her about the service requirements for children in the present world. So children who are in school at the moment. What does this look like? What's available to those children and the parents currently out there in the world at the moment? And what can we learn from this? Also, what does the future hold when the current generation starts to enter the workforce? What are the things we need to think about? We chat openly about the generations of people who are now in the workforce and what we can do as change makers to better support them. Suzanne is an absolutely incredible practitioner. I mean that from the bottom of my heart and a wonderful person to boot. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Let's jump straight in. Look, Suzanne Hanway, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, I've been asking you to come on this podcast. I was saying to my wife today, nearly a year. I said, please, Suzanne, come on, please. I'm very busy, very busy, which is a good sign. Um, But maybe we'll start off, um, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do. So I'm I'm Suzanne and I'm... I was very lucky to be in the profession that I'm in. I'm uh, an occupational therapist and have been so, I said, I was thinking about that. I was like, oh my God, 28 years. 28 years. 28 years. So I obviously don't look that old. No, you only look um, about 25. And I kind of started off and I didn't go into OT straight away. I went right. into science in UCD okay. and I started off with, loved the sciences, loved it, kind of, you know, the biology side of things and went into UCD and I was like, oh my God, it's like cattle market, there's 500 people in the lecture hall. Yeah. I'm not really understanding this. I don't understand that. And went, this, I'm not getting that connect, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that connect has been a hallmark of my, my career where I've gone. So anyhow, I switched um, and applied for OT in Trinity. Well, first of all, I kind of went and visited a couple of places. Um, yeah spoke with an uncle of mine who has a very significant physical disability and his first OT was Anne Beckett who is a niece of Samuel Beckett and she was one of the first OTs in Ireland and she lost one of her legs in an accident and she was my uncle my uncle's OT and he's very very kind of affected by his disability Mm. 
in some ways, but what he's achieved is absolutely amazing. And he always spoke so highly and he said, oh, I think you might like that. Go and visit mm. a couple of OT departments. And I hadn't heard of OT before then. Yeah. Looked into the course and went, like that. And it was a heavy course, you know, compared to anyone who was doing their 10 hours a week of lectures, it was 35, 40 hour week lectures, mm. placement, but loved it. Like the minute I did it, I was like, okay. And it was tough, academically tough. Um, and I think something which has happened now that it was the case, it's, it's a match of the person. You're seeing people maybe go into OT, not mm. always. And um, it's quite high points. And they might yeah. academically be really, really gifted. But I think the personality of the person is, is hugely important to our profession. Yeah. Um, Let's just back that, up there a little bit on the OT point, because some people listening would be like, what is OT? How would you describe what occupational therapy is? Because I remember hearing about it when I was studying 20 years ago. And I was like, occupational therapy, is that something that happens in the workplace where you're how you're yeah. sitting or like some sort of you know, rehabilitation? A lot of people don't understand it. I think they, they mm. do think of the word occupation and it's us to do with getting a job. Where, the, I suppose, the, the principle of OT, it looks at occupational performance areas. So it looks mm. at a day, it looks at likes and what you do within that day. It's your work, if you're obviously in a job, it's your, your education, if you're a child, it's your play, it's your leisure. It's your activities of daily living. So they are your mm. occupational performance areas. And then an OT looks at how an illness, how a disability, how maybe a, a neurodivergence affects your performance in that area and looks at ways to either adapt, compensate, or develop your skills. And again, mm. it very much depends what clinical area you work in. You know, I obviously work in the area of kind of younger children, children mm -hmm. in care it'd be very different my work day compared to if I was in you know Beaumont or, or a hospital you know Absolutely. much more of a rehab area now a lot of the listeners to this podcast in particular are designers are change makers so they'd probably be classified as creatives yeah and uh, they're all throwing their eyes up to heaven I can see them now <laughs> but um a lot of those people and a lot of my peers at the moment it seems to be um, over the last five, 10 years, a lot of people have been assessed for things. A lot of my peers are now discovering that they maybe have ADHD or just generally neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your take on a description of what neurodivergence is. And then we'll come up with the second question is, what are the kind of challenges that you see um, that neurodivergence, uh, you know, people with neurodivergence have in their daily lives. I think, I think for, first and foremost, there's, there's a shift with the, the understanding of neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. um, and acceptance. And acceptance. It's not a, a, you need to be fixed. It's like, this is yeah. who I am. And there is a big shift. There's even a shift in clinical practice about in a couple of years time, are we, are we going to have all these different diagnostic categories anymore or are we just going to have the term neurodivergent are we going to have dcd which is obviously some people might know it as dyspraxia developmental coordination disorder asd autistic spectrum disorder adhd all of those kind of come under neurodivergent i think we're yeah. seeing it, it's always been there but it, it's never being connected to the same way that it has now. I think we'll all look back in our past and we go, oh, maybe I'm a bit neurodivergent. I definitely am. Mm. Um, we look at people in our class and they're maybe just labeled, ah, oh, they were labeled different. You know, they yeah. maybe had mental health issues, but there definitely is a shift to, to, to label things more. 
Um, I think in a couple of years time, it won't be that because there is more, again, more of a shift as well in accepting the person. And I very much do that within, within practice. It's not someone is coming to me to be fixed. Yeah. about giving them insights into it. Well, that's why that's hard for you. you get really overloaded by sensory information, you mm. know, and here's some strategies that might help. So it's learning strategies to, to manage that neurodivergence and to navigate. Yeah. And it can make navigating things a little bit more challenged when you don't understand it. But mm. I always think it's when you understand it more, you can navigate it and you can figure out. Some people need to do assessment to figure that out. Other people just go, do you know what? I know I maybe have, as in an adult, I know I maybe have a neurodivergence, but I figured, I figured out how to, to navigate that so I don't need yeah. a label. But obviously some people do, do, do go so that route. You mentioned there that a lot of your work is with young children. Um, what are the kind of challenges they face? Because even though the industry within OT has evolved and has accepted the fact that this isn't about being fixed. Yeah. Society is somewhat behind. So what are the challenges? I think the they... challenges are access to services. I, even yeah. in private practice, it's quite hard to access services, HSE services, waiting lists are, are you know, Crazy. just bonkers, absolutely bonkers. So the, 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 the clinical services and the HSE, and there's some fantastic professions within those mm. areas, but waiting lists really are, are a challenge. I think schools can be, be a challenge. The more people that can tune into the person's individuality. Um, yeah. And I absolutely appreciate teachers of a class of 30 odd kids and they can't always make yeah. it. But if they hold that neurodivergence in their head relating to all the kids, Hmm. that can be really good. So I know for, for me, I get better outcomes in the work I do when I get that really good connection with the parent and yeah. I get a really good connection with the school and the school and the parent get that connection with the child. Sure. And really outcomes in intervention are stratospherically different. It's the ones where I'm seeing that, oh, we haven't got the school on board or maybe mom and dad aren't as, as tuned into where, you know, their, their child hmm. is at. That really does affect yeah. So as an OT, I very much try and coach and empower parents in schools to get that connection because it's really, really powerful. And any of the research that's coming out now says, mm. you know, getting that connection first and foremost really influenced outcome measures. Yeah. Now on that point, um, the the pressure on schools yeah. to support uh, an additional need, if you want, yeah. from a child. If you had a class of say thirty. And they were all assessed. How many of those children would you say on average would be uh, neurodivergent? A third, I would think. A third, about a third of a class of 10. Yeah. So in my year, like when I was in school in the early 80s, all the way through until the mid 90s, there was definitely people mm. that were in my class that would have been neurodivergent. They would have learning disabilities learning disabilities and they were kind of classified as just being difficult yeah. or slow yeah. or any yeah. of these terms that are very kind of derogatory um but we've noticed a shift that's happened in the last definitely 20 years anyway with my generation of parents there seems to be an, uh, an acknowledgement that we could probably better support people what do you think is behind that what 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 has caused this kind of universal shift to kind of global understanding that we're all different and we're all unique. I think research, 
I think models of practice have um, have have evolved. I think the training the teachers and clinicians are getting, you know, is it's sowing that seed, you know, and it it's the, the ability to reflect and go what we were doing wasn't working well. Mm. You know, neurodivergence when it wasn't being supported, when it wasn't being understand, you were understood, you were seeing the impact in the mental health service. And there's yeah. so, you know, I look back to my own, you know, clinical placements within my training. And some of my earlier work, when you saw people who had very significant mental health difficulties, and you know it's because their neurodivergence wasn't yeah. understood. You know, so the mental health services then were getting blocked up and they're going, oh, there's something not quite clicking. You know, we need to go back mm. and we need to look at what we were doing from the very beginning. So I think it's a, a shift. More of a holistic approach and more of a, a correlation. You could see, well, this generation were relatively unsupported and it's having a an effect yeah. in the health services later on in life hugely so and like you would yeah. see like even in the prison system you know there would be definitely kind of people who would have been maybe on the spectrum who it wasn't picked up it wasn't picked up and their social difficulties yeah. then were, were misinterpreted as oh god you're, you're, and they ended they were very very socially maybe vulnerable and they ended up in situations so definitely research would show that there are people in the prison system who haven't been haven't been diagnosed yeah and um, so I think there is a plus for for diagnosis in 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 very many cases. Mm. So being able to kind of understand, say, okay, let's look behind a behaviour, and I think that's a key thing that I sure. look at in practice. And yeah. get parents in schools don't just look at the behaviour. Why is it there? What is it? What is the intent of that behaviour? And if we can figure out the intent, we can shift things rather than a behaviour of, oh, we're going to stop it, we're going to reduce yeah. it. In some cases, that does work. A more cognitive cognitive approach but when there's a behavior there that has more of an emotional component mm. our, our limbic system you know and you think of it, the flip the layer this is very this is very basic so your limbic system is kind of your tongue and it's chucked away over your frontal your frontal lobe your executive function okay, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. so if your limbic system is on fire we flip the lid and executive function and frontal control is gone and that's okay. the behavioral sign of things in, in, in very many cases, certainly the cases I would work with. So we go back and we do body-based approaches. We go back and we say, let's support the limbic system. Let's get that regulation, that connect. And we keep the executive function and the limbic system, you know, tucked right. away. You know, yeah. it's like when the child has an absolute meltdown. Language, you know, they're not going to process it. They're not going to hear it. So we need yeah. to let that limbic system settle down and that frontal, the frontal part, you know, come back. That's it. It's accessible. So to regulate. You know, in some of the work I do with children in care, it's encouraging body-based approaches rather than a cognitive approach. Okay, which which is like one of the questions that I had for you, like with occupational therapy, the help that you can provide to children. Mm. Um, what are some of the activities that you do that maybe teachers or people who work with children can start to incorporate into their their practice, so to speak? Yeah, movements like movement is absolutely so powerful. Mm. Um, you, you look at maybe a model like Finland where children get movement every 15 minutes. So How do they do this. Like, let, let's stop on this one a second. Yeah, it's like yeah. if you look at a classroom. But it could be just even at the desk. It could be let's everyone stand up and, you know, shake your hands. At, you know, so, each other. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to be. And this is where I try and work with teachers and say it doesn't have to be that you're going into the PE hall. It doesn't have to be that you leave the class. Yeah. You can have those really quick and easy, you know, shifts and movements and movements then allow the brain to be accessible for, for learning. So you think of it like filling your cup up, it's, yeah. the cup will fill up. And if the child's cup is full, 
pouring stuff in, it just overflows. So movement sometimes can allow that cup to empty a little bit and for there, there to be capacity for connection and learning. So really simple, quick movement breaks, even before like a handwriting activity could be everyone shakes their hands out, you know, shake them up, shake them down, stretch them out. Hmm. Really, really simple things. And teachers that buy into that and see it as a support for the curriculum definitely have better outcomes of engagement for all the kids, not just kids that are neurodivergent. Yeah, that's, you know, it's crazy. Like this, even I have to say, say for me, like I'm sitting with you now and I'm both really focused on the screen. I know by the time I'm finished, I need movement. Yeah. You know, I need some movement before I go on to something, something else because I really had to focus. I've had to tune everything out. Yeah. To, you know, to engage. So I think teachers can do that. Um, bilateral movement, some movement that involves two sides of your two sides of your body. There's a huge amount of research around how that it supports executive functioning. You mm -hmm. know, impacts on processing speed, impacts on literacy and numeracy. So having movement that has that bilateral. So it's mm -hmm. using the two sides of your body and crossing crossing over with the. So two what would that look like if you if you're to give us an example? Um, I know you've got so many amazing methods. Yeah. I haven't seen you in action. Um, <laughs> what does that look like in terms of methods? Because we're talking about stuff here that you can apply for children, but it's obviously, it applies to adults as well. Like I train an awful lot of adults and I do incorporate some sort of games and uh, activities and movement. Probably not enough though, based on yeah. what you're telling me here. Like, you know, like if we're doing a six hour workshop and we're splitting it into segments there's probably enough opportunity there for all of us change makers to to weave some of this thinking into our practice oh hugely so so like a, a quick and easy thing could be everyone stands up when there's a thing called a cross call where you get your right hand to touch your left knee you get your left hand to touch your right knee you know no, so you're crossing over that midline so you you're engaging pokey and turn around yeah <laughs> what it's all about that kind of like stuff jumping jacks even something simple like jumping jacks yeah that you're using the, and you watch in a classroom kids doing jumping jacks and you'll go oh and you'll see the difficulty some yeah. kids have and some adults have with 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 that bilateral but there is great power in bilateral based movement you know and as opposed to you know there there's a misconception sometimes that you know okay in football again football can some can be some with someone's absolute nightmare yeah you know, for a child who gets really overloaded by sensory information, for, you know, a child that struggles in maybe in those big, noisy groups, a child mm. who doesn't have the coordination, the, the quick postural control, it's an absolute nightmare for them. And it sends them back to class really dysregulated. So it's knowing what movements will regulate, as in kind of keep you in that nice kind of zone, or what sure. movements can dysregulate and send you up that you go back into class and you're going, oh, I can't focus on my maths and my, my Irish, you know? Was most of us in school yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, so, yeah. so I think it's, it's teachers, again, I'm, I'm a great believer in, you know, coaching and empowering people with the knowledge. And when they have the knowledge, I've done work with teachers, they'll go, oh, I feel so bad now. I was stopping a child swinging on their chair. Now I know that they just weren't getting enough movement opportunities in the, in the classroom. I'm going to yeah. go back and and try and do that before a really demanding cognitive task. Hmm. One of the pieces that I, I really came to respect was the OT's kind of, um, kind of collaborative nature of wanting to incorporate their learnings with the other disciplines, like teachers, the medical professions. Yeah. But there seems to be a lack of um, opportunity there, like a system 
to feed into it like it's it's very broken in those kind mm-hmm. of channels mm-hmm. so the evidence that you have based on scientific research for a parent to go back to the uh, the school or the the medical profession like a doctor and stuff they're required to be the proxy between all three or four of them what do you think the future looks like for government services that are more holistic and being able to document and share so you all kind of access the same repository of information i think it's challenging yeah I think we still have data long... challenging as well probably yeah i think it, we still have a long way to go um i think it's setting the structures and the standards in place and not mm-hmm. just c- kind of keeping it too links and allowing every school to operate and obviously they do have standards you know and that's you know, they're all doing amazingly, but it's to kind of say, okay, you need to pull these people in. So having a standard, so it's not left so loose. So I think there needs to be tighter policies and standards. And there there is that shift, but things move so slowly within the the public sector and obviously the the private sector as well. I think it's getting in it from a training point of view. So in teacher training, training of medics, training of Mm. all the professions that you need in that team, that everyone is on the same page and understands that profession because we don't always understand the the framework and we need to respect that profession and how we can connect and engage the the Mm. mess. So I think it starts from the really early, the training. And having yeah. that that framework in place, so if a teacher goes into a school, they know okay, these are these are some of the things that I might need to to look out look out for. And it is happening, but it mm. needs to be certainly upped. Yeah, absolutely. W- one of the things that I've basically been working on for the last nine months, as you know, the Makers and Doers School, because I know you've been interested and in, yeah, no, shared it out in your own social channels, and I really appreciated that. Um, but the importance of other avenues for children who aren't, say, sporty, um, who aren't uh, kind of interested in in doing the traditional sports like football or tennis or any of these things. They may find it very difficult due to the coordination or just interest. What do you think um, or do you think uh, the opportunity lies with the arts and crafts and design generally? What would that give to children like if it was included much earlier because i know other um countries in the world like finland they introduce design at a much earlier age what's the effect on their brain at the younger brain by by weaving this kind of thinking into it oh i think it has massive massive positive impacts you know that the construction part of our brain has been is it been fired up and the ability to mm develop what we call our praxis skills through through play design creative activities and everyone needs to be able to 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 have strong praxis you know the term dyspraxia comes from difficulty with the skill of praxis and praxis is about ideation getting an idea sequencing and doing it and when we you know play with lego when we make things we have to get that ideation and then we have to sequence all the steps and this is what i love people you know having free play on Lego and not just reading the instructions. Yeah. You know, and building it. And you know, I certainly have had some people you go, Oh, I glued it all together and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> like, you know, so the brain it's gets stimulated. Mad. Like there's yeah. so many parts of the brain that get stimulated by that 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 creative, that ideational play. It's really, really, really powerful. And I think it's really mm. important. And there's definitely a shift in schools and in, in that kind of, of, of opportunities and learning as well. I'm a really, really strong advocate um, 
for the need for really holistic options for sports in school. It shouldn't just mm. be CIA, it shouldn't just be rugby, it shouldn't just be soccer. Because what you want someone to find a physical outlet that they get their joy from. Mm. And if we really have it that narrow, children then just I suppose they get it, they you get a sense, I'm not good at sports. Yeah. Just haven't found your sport. You know, it brings me back to my own school school days and God we all our PE teacher did was basketball and rounders, which I was absolutely rubbish at. Rubbish right. at. And you just had to do that and there wasn't there was no other options. And certainly as a as a as a younger adult, it took me longer to navigate and find the sports that I got my joy from. But that was because mm. I'm just that kind of a person. The system wasn't doing it. Yeah. And I do think schools need to make sure they offer enough after school, they offer enough sport that children can find their physical outlet that they get their their joy from because we see a huge correlation with children maybe who have DCD who never find that sport. They get obese, mental health problems develop later on in life. So it's yeah. really important to do all that sampling and find the activity that gives you joy. So it's not really about um, an alternative then is what I'm hearing. Like if you if you like sport, um, great, you've got lots of opportunities. If you don't like sport, don't give up on it. Find a sport yeah, that yeah. the the child does like, but there is an alternative. It nearly needs to be complementary to for all children. I think you need to do both. You need to do the creative medium, and you need to do the sports yeah. medium. I think yeah. they shouldn't be they shouldn't be neglected. That's really interesting because a lot of people, a lot of the parents that I spoke to, and I was kind of like prototyping makers and doers. They were like, "Oh, this is great. It gives them an alternative to not having to go and." do the the football on the on the Sundays or the Saturdays whatever days and I was like yeah but it still didn't really sit right with me and it, it's really refreshing for you for me to hear that you're saying that it should be complimentary it's not just an exclusionary exercise and maybe maybe that occupies more of the leisure time the creation True. that's okay and the same way someone maybe the sports you know occupies more of their time but it's to get to get the mix get the mix yeah. of, the, of the of the two of them is important and can be hard for some for some children to find that sure you know? yeah, absolutely especially in a crowded space like you know when you um go out on a saturday morning in your car to drop your kid to uh, a, a sporting event you just see how many sporting events have just popped up in the last 10 years and um, it was the same in australia same here i think the world is kind of like realizing that there's a lot of uh, benefits for this extracurricular um activities after school yeah. yes and no i think as i, I you want after school activities, mm. but you want that, yeah, you want that unstructured time. I was about to say, <laughs> but does that come with a risk? Um, and I know from speaking to you before, a little light bulb went off in my head. I wouldn't claim to have a big light bulb going off in my head because you know my brain isn't as big as uh, you'd think it is. But you saying to me before that too much and too many of these classes in terms of structured play, has its disadvantages. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think you think of what we talk about ideation, being able to figure out mm. how to occupy your time. Yeah. If we if we schedule our children, and it's not always the case, some kids can have everything scheduled for them and they're fine, they can figure out, they can occupy, but enough and that, but they're like, okay, what am I doing today? Where am I going? What activity yeah. am I going to? But the skill from a mental health point of view and a learning point of view, this, the ability to reflect and have time on your own as a child, as an adult, and figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to occupy your time is a, such an important skill. Mm. And definitely, 
as as a parent, I can absolutely relate how you need your you know your children occupied because you're working and you, you know they can't mm-hmm. just be you know your child you want to reduce your child minding fees as well. So as you can see that from a parent side, and I remember post posting and and in a, a parent's WhatsApp or or social media forum linked to my own something like like that in my own children's school. Oh, I got eaten, and I went, oh okay, I want like <laughs> you're obviously not a working parent. What, what, working parent you know and maybe that free time there's a little bit at the weekend when you're not when you're not at work but you really are empowering your child with powerful skill yeah to be able to go okay you've got an afternoon oh i'm gonna i'm gonna do some painting i'm gonna i'm just gonna read a book you know and being able to to quieten ourselves down as well because you're 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 like a roller coaster and you're up there all the time when you're doing all the activities and the brain needs to be able to go okay i can slow myself down yeah, you know that ability to to, to to come down is is really important. As opposed, to, oh, I have to be going all the time. I can't slow down. I can't slow down. That was in one of the pre-chats we had for this. You were talking about that whole kind of giving space and permission for them to do what they want. And our, my children are quite young, like they're four and a half and nearly seven. And I was kind of like, oh, I, we haven't really done that. Like on Saturday afternoons, it's it's usually like okay, let's let's do something else after yeah, a busy yeah. Saturday morning. Whereas now we're starting to weave in some of your advice in terms of okay, like for the next you know two hours, you get to do what you want. Yeah. Um, and it could be just letting them play in the garden. It could be letting them do Lego, whatever it is. Like you know, but the children are finding it difficult. Well, my children are finding it difficult to let go without parental supervision and I know I'm not alone in this so what advice would you give to parents who are trying to incorporate some of the things that we've spoken about today in this episode and they're struggling with their child's neediness and clinginess saying come on mommy you need to play with me or come on daddy push me on the swing Mm. how do you get around that how do you how do you introduce this without having them kick off and you know getting a thump in the head that's I think sometimes if the adult there. needs to engage with the child, some do if if they haven't got the ability to play on yeah. their own yet, it's sometimes the adults getting that connect with the child, mm. um, and getting the child then in that zone where they're nice and regulated, and they haven't got attachments and regulation. There, there's a concept in in a framework called sensory attachment um, intervention by an OT called Aileen Granick, who's absolutely amazing, mm. and she developed this model uh, around sensory attachment. For, for children who've had adverse adverse you know childhood experiences sure and one of the things she's really strong at is the activity that you have shared joy and pleasure so it's the adult and the child finding something that they can connect and they both can have that shared joy and pleasure with and with that comes connection comes regulation and then when the yeah. child is connected and regulated then they're able to go off a little bit on their own okay so it's it's also grading and and going okay well maybe they're not able for the two hours maybe it's just a half an hour maybe it's only 10 minutes so it's build building it build it's, it up it's building it up so it, it's setting the targets right and, yeah. and as a clinician you know you have to reflect on that as a parent i think you have to because you can set the bar so high we're setting ourselves oh. as parents up for failure you're setting yeah. yourself as a as a professional. Say, oh God, no, that was, you know, it's like someone saying to me, "You're going to have a six pack by the end of the week." Like, that's not a dream. I haven't done any exercise. How did you know? Yeah, you know. So we have to set the bar at the right. You know, it's a just right challenge. You know, there's so yeah. many little phrases that I've kept as a therapist from, you know, maybe a, a clinician I was really in, in, influenced or a course I really did. Mm-hmm. Things like shared joy and pleasure. 
connect the, that connect before you regulate um the shared or implied or the connect and then the what was the other one what was the other one i was saying shared joy and pleasure the just right challenge the just right challenge the just right challenge because you can set like i could have have a, have a session for a child set up with all my goals hmm. and all my ideas and all my challenges and the child could come into the room and i go do you know what they've had a, a difficult transition they're they're not really in the zone of sitting down and doing this activity i'm gonna yeah. have to change tack so i'm gonna have to get my challenge just right as to where they are at and I have mm. to connect with where they're at. Then when I connect with where they're at, they're going to be more regulated. Then we can challenge. Okay. In terms of accessing services, it was one of the first things that you called out in, in terms of the difficulties for parents at the moment, trying to, trying to find the right channel, the right support channel. In some cases, it can take years mm. for a parent to find A, a resource, and then B, the right resource. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're waiting so long before they can actually experience it for people at the moment um, who may have a sense that their child is neurodiverse um, what advice do you give them in terms of being able to support them in the interim I think it's not jumping the gun to do formal diagnostic assessment straight away mm. I, I've had quite a lot of parents who come to me at the end of a journey and they've done so many assessments and they're still none the wiser about how to work with their mm. with their child I think it's finding finding a person who can support you to go okay where are we at how can we map where we need to go to what do we need to do first what do we need to to do next the HSE run lovely drop-in clinics that can be quite useful. You know, once a month they do drop-in clinics and I would encourage mm. a lot of parents to, to do that. In my own practice, I do that quite a lot at the start. And I've turned away people and said, you know what, in your journey, I don't think OT is where we need to, to start. Yeah. If I do assessments, I will always try and map out, this is really a priority. This is what we need to look at now, next. Hmm. mapping that out but I think as a parent it's really finding someone who you can connect with on a relational yeah. level because when you get that relational connection then I think it's much easier to map things Before. out you know and I've seen so many reports from parents and, and they pay so many so much money for and yeah. they're not buying into it yeah but they felt because this person had all these letters after the name, you know, or they so many years of experience that, oh, oh this person must be right. Not always, not always. Yeah. You know, there are some cases that it can be very hard to figure out that diagnosis and it needs a sure. very skilled team of, of, of clinicians as well. Um, yeah. But I think it's not writing off the HSC. There's some, you know, some no, nice no. things going on within the different areas, dropping clinics, you know, for OT, for psychology and their chat. And they yeah. can be good starting places. So to link with someone within either the HSC, you know, if your GP is really good, if you have a mm. private therapist, then listen, I just want to brainstorm and I don't know where to go. And sure. I would do that a lot in practice. And it really shifted how I mm. provide services to, to, to families. One of the things that I wanted to kind of start wrapping up the conversation on is the proliferation of Instagram. A lot of parents, myself included, use it. And there's a lot of mum's advice out there that maybe have parent or have children who are neurodivergent mm. and they're offering advice. How do you see that playing out? About social media. Mm. Definitely makes a bit. And there's some wonderful 
Instagram accounts. And then there's some one that there's some that I think they're quite fake. They're quite false. It's about the, how it looks. Mm. Um, I know myself, I try, I, I, I share a little bit of my social media, not a huge amount. Um, I think the pressure, the pressure to kind of have it look amazing, you know, yeah. have your makeup, have your hair, have your content looking really snazzy and then getting too generalized in recommendations. Yeah. And I see a lot of content on social media. And that's, I'd say there's some wonderful stuff, really, really. And it's too generalized. You can't, you can't generalize some things, but some of it really isn't going to fit for your, your child. So I think it's not to use that as your vibe. And I think it's dip in, dip out. Yeah. Um, My friend Rachel Dekas, who's a trauma-informed design specialist in uh, the White House at the moment, she calls it practicing without a license. Yeah, um, and that's really, def- that's really yeah. good. That's really good. So um, there is a risk when it comes, mm. comes with that. One of the pieces that I just want to go back to, um, you mentioned there around ideation mm. and the praxis uh, part of the brain really struggles. In the prelude to this, you were saying some people just can't do it. They just mm. can't do ideation. And for all the people out there who run workshops, myself included, for, for clients, I've seen this firsthand. I watch people in, you know, leadership and executive positions being tasked with some stuff that in the design world, we'd be like, this is pretty, this should be easy enough. And we whisper it and we just watch them stand there and like, you know, like fawn and not be able to actually attempt it. What's happening there? Was that a case of like way back, they were unsupported in their development and they weren't able to play or it could be, it could be their, their lid is flipped right okay you know so what can we do to help them you know it could be at the start of maybe an activity or like a workshop have movement right now the movement is the answer it sounds like movement is the answer for <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know it's, it's, it's michael it's jackson powerful. um they might be doing that getting that movement so if someone is coming the in bilateral to, movements bilateral movement Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, you think you might go into a workshop and you might be stressed, you might be socially anxious. You know, yeah. some people go into to those social situations, less people they don't know. So your limbic system gets activated. Right. You know, okay. your limbic system gets more activated. And if your limbic system gets activated, as I said, flip the lid. Yeah. So, and then you're like, okay, come up with an idea. But your limbic system, you know, it could be even something simple like a really, really cold drink as well. Like the, the, yeah, the, the nerve that connects, you know, the vagus nerve that connects the, the gut and the brain. A cold drink, splashing some cold water, settles that down, breathing, you know, so either doing, mm. there's a big shift to mindfulness and some re- really, really interesting stuff. But I think doing mindfulness, doing movement before then the, the more challenging cognitive tasks so everyone is in that zone everyone is in a more regulated zone because everyone yeah. will respond different to coming into that environment and the stresses and the unfamiliar as well yeah Suzanne you could talk about this stuff and I know you can talk <laughs> about it for days okay how That's do you what my husband that? says are you not still talking about the same thing <laughs> yeah uh, is it a case that he could ask a question, leave the room and come back in and you're still talking about it. <laughs> quite possibly, quite. Like it's my passion, you know. I, I know, love, yeah, it, it, you know, you I, I love the work it. I do. I love problem solving. Yeah. I love being, you know, there's there's an OT Kim Bartel who uses the term a behavioral detective. You mm. love trying to figure out, you don't always figure out, but I mm. certainly enjoy the, the, challenge. the challenge. 
Yeah. And I'm not afraid to ask someone else if I don't know. I'm not therapist because I know everything. I know a lot. Yeah. Well, I use the parents as a resource. I learn from the parents I work with. You've given me, you know, resources and mm. tips. And I really learn from the children that I work with. And I think yeah. to be that humble in your practice is really, I don't want to present this facade, you know, on Instagram that I'm this, you know, groomed, Expert. perfect, perfect person. You know, I'm flawed. I have my yeah. character traits that, you know, my personality traits, maybe that, oh, that's not, not, not the best. But well, we all think you're brilliant. Oh, thank you very much. But we I think, ha think having that thirst for learning and it's constantly mm. evolving, you know, I've been an OT for a long time, but I don't, I still feel my learning is developing yeah you know and that's why i loved when you were doing you know your workshops like oh that's really exciting that's really different yeah. i think that was great where do you go to stay up to date like wh where are your um kind of knowledge pools that you you look at and learn a peer from? group i'm really mm. really lucky that i have a network of, of peers within my area and we'll share ideas i think mm -hmm interdisciplinary resources as well. I yeah. work, you know, quite closely with speech and language therapists, psychologists, parents. So I keep up to date multiple ways, you know, mm. social media to some degree, but I, I can, you know, and you can go down the route and you buy a book that you've seen on social media and I've done it. Yeah. And someone asked me recently about something that I bought through social media and said, did you read it? And I said, oh, I got to chapter two. Right. You know, so it was marketed. It was it was really sold and it was, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And then I got and I went, the content's a bit. Yeah. Bit wishy you know, so and obviously kind of journals, courses, it can get quite difficult when you've been in yeah. OT for as long as I have, because courses that are fresh, courses that are new, you know, there's a certain kind of cycle of courses and sure. three courses that go around. So it can be harder. You mm. know, I went to England for a year to train in neurodevelopment therapy because of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's just been open. And I think then the knowledge will find you and having those connections with mm. people that inspire you as well. Do you want to give a shout out to any books that you think that you're like, that is a good book and that is a recommendation for yeah. any parents? I or any love The Well-Balanced Child oh, yeah. um, by Sally Goddard Bly, yeah. uh, which is about all our early life experiences and, 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 you know, our primary reflexes and how that can affect learning. There's another book by an Irish OT, Enos Lawler, Max and me, a story about sensory processing, which I love. And the kids that come into me love. It's cartoon and it's about a little boy called Max the Modulator and what it's like to be in his world. But it's very affirmative. Nice. Yeah. Love, love those two books. Okay, nice. I'll find them and put a link to them in the show notes. Suzanne, yeah. if people want to reach out to you and follow you and learn more about what you do, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Um, yeah. I think I didn't change my handle. I used to do a group called Master Movers. Um, so I think it's Master Movers OT. I'll find it and I'll put it into yeah. the show notes. Um, and then my email, SuzanneHanway at gmail.com. That's, awesome. that's always a good, a good starting Suzanne, point. Suzanne, I wrap every episode up by thanking the guests for their you know vulnerability, giving me their time and energy and being put on the spot and being able to speak somebody like me um you know i really really appreciate it because i know you are so busy <laughs> like if people realize suzanne hanway like the demand for suzanne hanway is through the stratosphere so to give me an hour of your time uh, i really really appreciate it so keep doing the the great work that you're doing and in the future you're always welcome back to the podcast i really enjoyed it and it's really interesting just to kind of finish up 
I was getting ready to come and I was putting on this kind of more formal shirt. Yeah. And I looked at myself and I said, oh, that's not giving me joy. And my favorite color is orange. And I, this is not remotely a work, a work, like if you want to present a facade. And I went, you know what? It's giving me joy and I'm going to be in the zone. I'm going to be comfortable as opposed to this, you know, quite stuffy shirt that might have looked very professional. And I went, you know, I want to have joy. I want to show the real me and I want to be in the zone and not be. That's great to do that because everyone who listens and watches on this podcast, they're all about, you know, kind of presenting their best self. So, you know, you're living the mantra. (laughs) Suzanne, thanks so much. Listen, thanks a million. Bye.